Taking food from poor widows is not an act that usually deserves praise, although in Elijah's case it actually does warrant some. Elijah did not just take all the food the widow had, but Elijah asked for and received it in obedience to God. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're in an expositional study of the life of Elijah. In today's passage, we'll see how God provides both for Elijah and the poor widow out of His grace. In this message, God's grace is a literal saving grace. Well, Phil, in today's message, we're going to learn all about how God provides. What are some typical characteristics of God's provision? Well, Mark, one of the ways we learn best is by stories. And uh, today we've got a wonderful story of God's grace and his provision for Elijah, the prophet, and also for a poor woman who needed the grace of God. And I use the word grace because that's one of the main lessons about God's providence. Anytime God takes care of our needs, it's all of his grace. It's never anything that we can demand or deserve, but it's simply the blessing of a gracious God. Well, in this particular case, we see Elijah, a man of God, and a poor widowed mother who, as far as we know, is not a part of the people of God, both having their needs met. What does that passage tell us about God's method of provision? Mark, you know, it reminds me of something that is said in the New Testament, that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. And so many of God's gifts of providential care are spread throughout the world for believers and unbelievers alike. We all have reason to give thanks to God for his gracious care. But, you know, there is something deeper and richer, a greater blessing than simply knowing the care of God just for our material needs, and that is the true spiritual life that only comes to those who trust in the true God of the Bible. And as we're listening to the, today's message about a provision of the simple needs of daily bread, we should also be thinking today about Jesus Christ, the bread of life, who meets the deepest needs of the soul. Thanks, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 7, and listen to God's Word for us today. As you open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17, I want to come this morning to our second episode in the ministry of Elijah the prophet. In our first study, we were amazed to learn that Elijah was a man just like us. That hardly seems possible since Elijah was a mighty prophet, a miracle worker, a star athlete, a military hero. Yet the Bible says in the book of James chapter 5 that Elijah was a man just like us. That is the kind of thing you would never believe unless you heard it from God himself. Yet as we studied the first six verses of 1 Kings 17, we began to see that what the Scripture says is really true. Elijah really was a man just like us. He lived in an evil day like we do. He served the living God like we do. So we discovered that his strategy for living for God in an evil day is appropriate for us as well in our day. Elijah prayed to God. He obeyed God, and he stayed with God. Now, when we left Elijah in the Kareth Ravine, he seemed to be trusting God just about as much 
as a man can possibly trust God. He seemed to be stretched to the very limits of his faith. When God sent Elijah to tell that abominable king Ahab that there would be no rain in Israel, God did not tell him where he would go after he had delivered his message. Only after Elijah had preached that short sermon, only then, as the scripture says in verse 2, did God send him on to the Kareth Ravine. There he would drink from the brook and be fed by ravens. God only called his prophet to the first step of obedience, not the second step. It was as if Elijah was walking up a staircase in the dark. He could not see his way to the top, but step by step he reached out with his foot and found a firm place to stand in the calling of God. But surely when Elijah arrived at Kareth, he had climbed high enough. Surely it was enough for a man to live alone in the wilderness. Surely it was enough to slurp water from the brook, to eat from the beak of ravens. And yet God called Elijah to tighten his belt and take one more step of obedience. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land, the scripture says in verse 7. It had only been a brook in the first place, but a brook is something. A stream is something less, and then a sort of a creek that is less still, and then a trickle. And then finally, one morning, there was nothing at all. Can you imagine what a severe test of faith that must have been, even for a man of prayer like Elijah? A brook does not dry up overnight, you know. It dies a slow death. It dwindles away day by day. A man's faith might dwindle away in the time it takes a brook to dry up. A man might even decide that God is not alive after all in the time it takes a brook to become a riverbed. But Elijah did not lose his faith. He learned this simple lesson all over again. God gives daily bread to his servants. Just when Elijah was at the end of his brook, the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. God must be joking. It is one thing to be fed by birds, but it is another thing to go to Sidon of all places. What do we know about Sidon? Well, we get about as much of a guidebook as we care to get back in 1 Kings 16, verse 31. Ahab married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Aha! Sidon was Jezebel's stomping grounds. Zarephath is on Baal's home turf with all of the brazen idolatry and all of the unholy sacrifices and all of the temple prostitution that went along with Baal worship. God is commanding Elijah to go right down into the cesspool of sin. And not just to go there, you notice, but also to stay there. So Elijah went to Zarephath. The scripture says, this is like deja vu all over again for God's man, Elijah. All that God wanted from him when he went to Kareth was simple obedience. He wanted him to stay and obey. That is all he wants from Elijah as he goes to Zarephath. When Elijah arrived at the town gates, 
things did not look promising. Apparently, God was teaching the Baal worshippers in Sidon a little theology, too, for there was no more rain in Sidon than there was in Israel. God was showing that he and not Baal is the God of rain. When Elijah came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks, just a poor woman and a few sticks. Elijah hardly seems to have the courage to ask her for a meal. Can I have a drink? he says, and then he gets a little bolder. As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. But even that is more than the woman can handle. See how little she had. Elijah is not asking for much, just just a little water, verse 10, just a piece of bread, verse 11. But even that would be too much. All she has is a handful of flour and a little oil. Verse 12, she has enough to make a muffin, but not a loaf of bread. And she is gathering just a couple of sticks, the scripture says. It sounds like a great time for an out-of-town guest to arrive. It is not that this woman is inhospitable, it is that she has so very little. She is down to her last meal. And yet Elijah trusts In the word of God, God had promised that a widow would provide daily bread for him, and he trusts that promise completely. Even though she barely has two sticks to rub together, Elijah orders his meal. First, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have. What Elijah is trusting is the promise of God. Even though the widow is scraping the bottom of the barrel, he knows that God's resources cannot be exhausted. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain in the land. Back at Kareth, Elijah trusted not in brook or bird, but in the God of the brook and the raven. Now in Zarephath, Elijah is trusting not in flour or oil, but in the God of the flour and the oil. That trust is well placed, for the God of Elijah is a God who keeps his word. Verse 15, so there was bread every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry. You see, God gives his servants daily bread. There were no leftovers on this occasion. There were no loaves to gather into Ziploc bags and freeze for another day. No, this was daily bread, and it thus demanded daily faith in the providence of God. And while Elijah was in Zarephath, day by day, day after day, the widow went to her barrel of flour and her jar of oil, and there was just enough to make bread every day. The Dutch Christian Corey ten Boom had a similar experience in the German concentration camp at Ravensbrück. Corey and her sister Betsy were captured by the Nazis for hiding Jews during World War II. Betsy became ill while they were in the concentration camp, and Corey wrote about what it was like to give her medicine in her book, The Hiding Place. Another strange thing was happening, she writes. 
the vitamin bottle was continuing to produce drops. It scarcely seemed possible, so small a bottle, so many doses a day. Now, in addition to Betsy, a dozen others on our pier were taking it. My instinct was always to hoard it. Betsy was growing so very weak. But the others were ill as well. It was hard to say no to eyes that burned with fever, hands that shook with chill. I tried to save it for the very weakest, but even these soon numbered 15, 20, 25. And still, every time I tilted the little bottle, a drop appeared at the tip of the glass stopper. It just couldn't be. I held it up to the light, trying to see how much was left, but the dark brown glass was too thick to see through. There was a woman in the Bible, Betsy said, whose oil jar was never empty. She turned to it in the book of Kings, the story of the poor widow of Zarephath. It was one thing to believe that such things were possible thousands of years ago, another to have it happen now to us this very day. And yet it happened this day, and the next, and the next, until an odd little group of spectators stood around watching the drops fall onto the daily rations of bread. Many nights I lay awake in the shower of straw dust from the mattress above, trying to fathom the marvel of supply lavished upon us. Maybe, I whispered to Betsy, only a molecule or two really gets through that little pinhole, and then in the air it expands. I heard her soft laughter in the dark. Don't try too hard to explain it, Corey. Just accept it as a surprise from a father who loves you. Then Corey writes about the day another prisoner brought some treasure back to the barracks. A piece of newspaper, a slice of bread, and a small sack of vitamins. Back at the bunk, I took the new bottle of vitamins from the straw. We'll finish the drops first, I decided. But that night, no matter how long I held it upside down or how hard I shook it, not another drop appeared. Well, that is the same God Elijah knew. Elijah had enough to drink from the brook every day until he licked the last drop from the riverbed. And then the Lord sent him to the widow's home in Zarephath where he had enough to eat every day until as the scripture says, the very day that rain fell on the earth again. Do you know this God as well, this God who gives his servants daily bread? The Lord does give you daily bread, day by day, more than enough to survive and thrive. Thanks be to God for our daily bread. There is one other lesson I want to draw from this passage, and it is the most basic lesson in all of Scripture. God gives saving grace. These verses that teach us that God's grace is for at least five kinds of people. Who is it for? It is for the weak and helpless, first of all. This widow of Zarephath, I think, was once a woman of means, for we read in verse 19 that there was an upper room in her house. She had once possessed some of the finer things in life. She had room for a guest. But not anymore. Now she is weak and helpless. She herself is a widow living without the protection of a husband in a culture where unattached women were vulnerable to abuse. 
and her son is weak and helpless. He is fatherless, living without the security of a father or a model of manliness in his own home. And now these two are down to their last few twigs, just a fistful of flour and their last few drops of oil. How weak and helpless they seem. But you see, God's grace is for the weak and the helpless. The story before us is a demonstration that what the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, is 100% true. This is Deuteronomy 10, beginning at verse 17. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality. Now that sounds promising already. God shows no partiality, so you do not have to be somebody to catch God's attention, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. That is better still. God accepts no bribes so that you do not have to be rich to receive his grace. God does not favor the rich and famous. But there's one bit more. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien giving him food and clothing. What a beautiful promise. This passage is a commentary on the truth of that promise. God defends the cause of the fatherless, like this fatherless boy in Zarephath. God defends the cause of the widow, like this husbandless woman in Zarephath. He will give them his saving grace. He will be all the father and husband they need. And of course, the point is not that you actually have to be fatherless or be a widow to receive God's saving grace. The point is that his grace is for everyone. If God's saving grace is for the most weak and the most helpless, then it must be for you as well. Even the fatherless and the widow do not have an exclusive claim on the grace of God. God's saving grace is for all from the least to the greatest. Second, that grace is for those who are outside the family of God. This widow of Zarephath seems to have been a good woman. We might call her a nice person. When Elijah asks for a drink, she goes to get it for him. Verse 11, she is polite. She minds her P's and Q's. She follows the ancient Near Eastern custom in which women were obliged to draw water for men. More than that, she seems to have believed in the existence of God. Listen to the first thing she says to Elijah, as surely as the Lord your God lives. Now, of course, this may simply have been a manner of speaking, like when people say, so help me God, or God bless you, and they mean nothing of the sort. But it seems likely that this detail has been recorded in Scripture for our instruction Here this widow is living in Baal's hometown, and yet she confesses that the God of Elijah is a living God. But that living God does not seem to be yet her God. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she says, that living God may be Elijah's God, but he is not her God. She refers to him in the second person, not in the first person. 
She has not yet trusted in God for herself. She has not yet made a personal appropriation of the grace of God. And so she is still outside the family of God, and she seems to know it. Now, that may be the way it is for you this morning. You may be a nice person. You may live a moral life. You may mind your P's and Q's. You may even believe that there is a God. You may believe and do and be all those things and still be outside the family of God. It is not enough to believe that there is a God unless he becomes your God. You are outside the family of God until God becomes the God of your life. I suppose it is a bit like this. You may walk past the bank on the corner and believe that there is money in the bank. You may even believe those things by a sort of faith, not having been in that safe to see the money. You may nevertheless believe that there is money in the bank. But that means nothing to you unless you have made a deposit in the bank. Money in the bank is not money in the bank for you unless it is your money in the bank. That is the way it is between you and God until you have put your trust in Jesus Christ. You may believe that there is a God. You may even believe that he gives eternal life. But that means nothing to you unless you have made your own deposit on that salvation. That salvation is of no use to you unless it is your salvation. Your salvation that you have received by trusting that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Having faith that Jesus was raised from the dead to claim victory over your death. Until you have trusted in Jesus Christ for your own self, you are still outside the family of God. But do not despair, for the grace of God, saving grace, is for those who are still outside the family of God. The living God sent his prophet to this widow so that she might be brought into the family of God. And so the living God sends his word and his minister to you today so that you may be invited by his word to become his child. You are invited to leave your sins behind and come to Christ for saving grace, to become a member of God's family. In the third place, God's saving grace is for those whom God chooses. God's grace is God's choice. The grace of God is a matter of divine election. Of all the widows at all of the town gates, gathering all the sticks in the ancient world, was there a more unlikely prospect to receive God's saving grace than this woman? There she lived in Zarephath of Sidon, on Jezebel's plantation, right in Baal's parlor. What could she have known about the living God? What chance in a million could she have had to hear the good news about the living God and to receive that good news by faith? Jesus Christ spoke about this mystery of God's electing choice in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, beginning at verse 24. Jesus had been preaching to his own friends and neighbors in his hometown of Nazareth, and they all speak well of him, but they see in him nothing more than the son of a carpenter. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, no prophet is accepted in his hometown I assure you that there were 
many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. We learn from these words of Jesus that Elijah's going to Zarephath was a reproach to Israel for her lack of faith. We also learn that the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ is for Gentiles of all the world as well as for Jews. It is for the Gentiles in Sidonia as well as the Jews in Israel. It is for every people and nation throughout the world. But Jesus also teaches us that saving grace is a matter of God's election. It was God's purpose and God's choice to save the widow of Zarephath. God was the one who sent Elijah to her so that she might receive saving grace. Of all the widows to whom God's prophet might have been sent, she alone was chosen even before she put her trust in him. That is the way it always is with God's saving grace. God's children would not have heard unless God had sent his word to them, and they would not have believed unless God had given faith to them, and they would not have been saved unless God had given them his saving grace. From beginning to end, salvation is the work of God, which is why it is called grace. That is what grace is. In the fourth place, God's saving grace is for those who are about to die. I don't have any bread, the woman said, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Her words have a ring of resignation about them, a ring of inevitability. She and her son have been wasting away for weeks, most likely, and now they will gather, bake, eat, and die. Nothing more than a handful of flour and a drop of oil stand between them and eternity. If God's prophet had come just a week later, I suppose, they would have been in the grave. But Elijah came just in time. God's saving grace came just in time. Just as they were about to die, the Lord deliver them. Now, what about you this morning? Are you about to die? You can't really say for sure, can you? You may not expect to die soon, but it may be that nothing more than a clogged artery or the front of a bus stands between you and eternity. Earlier this year, a tenor was standing on a ladder at the Metropolitan Opera in New York performing the opening scene of the Mercropolis case. He was singing the line, you can only live so long. And then he suffered a heart attack and fell down to the stage dead. That makes you stop and think about your own mortality. What a comfort it is to know that God's saving grace is for those who are about to die. And not just for those who are about to die a physical death, but for those who are about to die a spiritual and eternal death. This is why Jesus Christ became a man and died on the cross and was raised again. It was to pay the penalty for sin, to claim victory over death, taking away its sting. You see, at just 
the right time. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the saving grace of God really is for you. It is for anyone, even for the weak and the helpless, even for those outside the family of God, even for those about to die. In fact, the saving grace of God is especially for the weak, for those outside the family of God, for those about to die. But I must tell you this, God's saving grace is for those who come to God in faith. You must come to God in faith. That is what the widow of Zarephath did. She came to God in faith, resting on his saving grace and trusting in him for salvation. Desperate though she was, she trusted in the word of God. What did the Lord command her to do? Verse 13, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Notice how the Lord always comes to us with words of assurance, first of all. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me, and then bring it to me, and then make yourself something and your son. How about tomorrow, Lord? Your prophet looks healthy enough. He looks like he might make it through the night. Why don't I just make a little something for myself, and then we'll just see about tomorrow when it comes. That is what this widow might have said. But the scripture says she went away and did as Elijah had told her. Now, if you were down to your last meal, would you give the main course to your pastor? This woman gave her first and her best for the Lord's work. She took the step of faith that the Lord required, first feeding the Lord's prophet as he commanded, and then making something for herself and her son. And this woman's faith secured salvation because God's saving grace always comes to those who trust in him. Jesus says, anyone who receives you receives me. He was speaking to his disciples. Anyone who receives you receives me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. That is how the widow of Zarephath received Elijah. She received him as a prophet sent from God. And by her faith, she thus received the reward of daily bread and saving grace. That same reward is available to anyone who receives Jesus Christ in faith. You will have daily bread and saving grace in Jesus Christ if only you will trust in him. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these simple and basic lessons, familiar to many, although perhaps unfamiliar to some, that you are the God who gives daily bread and that saving grace is available to all who trust in you. We ask that you would give us each one a greater measure of faith in your providence and in your salvation, that we might trust you the way that this widow trusted you unto salvation. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse in the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word. <laughs>